collaboration between different disciplines in your organization can be difficult, and finding clarity and alignment on the right problem to solve and the right solution design is even more so. We approach improvement from our own limited perspective. We can't take into account the whole story. How is that effective? Aha! Paul Rayner's Event Storming Facilitation Virtual Workshop is a multi-day online event. It promotes collaboration between different disciplines to solve business problems in the most effective way. This virtual workshop with Paul consists of four sessions on September 28th through October 1st, 2020, from 9 a.m. to noon in Central Time each day. To register and get 20% off your ticket, visit virtualgenius.com slash events. Use the code VGGTC. In this highly hands-on and interactive virtual workshop, you'll learn advanced event-storming facilitation skills from large business discovery to collaborative solution design at the team level. Also, Paul is great. That's my personal opinion. Once again, to get 20% off your ticket, visit virtualgenius.com events and use the code VGGTC. Welcome to episode 197 of Greater Than Code. My name is Jacob Stobel, and I'm here with my co-host, Rain Hendricks. Thanks, Jacob, and I'm here with our guest, Dan Moore. Dan has over 20 years of experience as a developer. His roles have included employee, contractor, community member, engineering manager, and CTO. He currently leads developer advocacy at Fusion Auth, a Denver company building software to handle authentication, authorization, and user management for any app. In 2018, Dan started a blog exclusively focused on helping new developers level up and has published over 150 posts to help them improve their skills and avoid common mistakes. He resides in Boulder, Colorado, and you can find him on Twitter at MoreDS. Hi, Dan. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome to the show. So you know what's coming. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Yeah, so I spent a little time thinking about this. Thanks for, um, because I've listened to some other episodes and had a great answer prepared. And then I asked my wife and she said, oh no, it's totally this. And so it's my ability to keep calm. And I've been in some really stressful situations. I'm happy to talk about some of those, but instead of freezing up, and this is mostly in a business context, I can definitely freeze up if my kid has a bloody broken arm or something like that. But I step back, I take a deep breath, and then I think about how to solve the problem, how to fix it. I don't throw up my hands. I don't say, what was me? I don't get frustrated with other people. Or, I, you know, I keep that down, right? Everyone gets frustrated with other people. But overall, my ability to keep calm and focus on solving the problem rather than taking it as a personal affront or being frustrated or being um, uh, defeatist. And I was thinking about where that came from, and I think part of it is just how I was raised. Uh, my parents are from the Midwest and just kind of super stolid folks. And I remember one time I left the parking bag off of one of our cars and it rolled down the driveway into a neighbor's fence and I wasn't yelled at. They were obviously un- unhappy. It damaged the fence. It damaged the car, but they just said, you know, we need to solve this problem. And that idea of we need to solve this problem is really something that I've taken to heart in my life. That's a, just a, a guiding principle for me. What do you do with with the frustration that you feel? Uh, well, as a good med- Midwestern person would do, I stuff it down, right? No, I think that it's important to acknowledge it. And as I've gotten older, I do acknowledge it. I take a little bit of time. But you can do that on your own. You can do that by taking a walk. And then, you know, sometimes I've I've actually taken to I don't journal per se but I definitely like will if I'm faced with a frustrating situation at work I will write something in a Google Doc and you know just have that like date it but um yeah so I guess that's how I deal with frustration is I kind of write it out internalize it and then set it aside after a certain period of time um I, I recently got laid off and I felt really sorry for myself for about an afternoon and then I went to you know brushed off my hands and went to work trying to find a, a new job I feel like that is a terrific lesson for new developers, particularly new developers that are, I don't like the word self-taught, the the, the new developers that are not coming from a traditionally prepared background, because 
speaking as someone who came from that back comes from that background as well like you have to sort of find the mindset of like this is a problem that is given enough time and energy i can figure it out and that took me a long time i was really convinced you know well maybe i can maybe i can do write this program but there's no way i could do that thing over there and i think that self-efficacy you're talking about is is really valuable so I'm actually interested in that. So you're saying it took you a long time to feel that you were powerful or knowledgeable enough to tackle kind of any problem? Is that what yeah. you're... Yeah. Like, I, I think I set a barrier, a, a completely arbitrary one for myself. I was not someone that sort of said, like, I want to be a developer and then started started the journey. Like, I was, I learned about writing code to solve other problems other than finding a job. And as I was doing it for a little bit, I was thinking to myself like oh does this mean i want to change careers and like get a job as a developer no i couldn't do that i could write a python script to arrange data in a spreadsheet but i don't i couldn't do that that's not for me but i had no evidence for that i just sort of set a barrier and and the truth is i could have been i could now be two years further in my career if i hadn't done that so i, I just think that's a really important really really important thing to learn yeah, thank you. I, and I think that one thing that's worth saying is that if you're faced with a problem and you don't buckle down and study for it, you're guaranteed not to actually solve the problem, right? And now there are problems that may be intractable or you may need to reach out to other resources, team members, pay consultants who've solved this problem before, whatever, which that's not really aimed at new developers. That's more people with the ability to hire a consultant. But um, you definitely, if you if you can't accept that mindset or find that mindset, you're definitely not going to make progress. I think of um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, where they talk about finding the right like mindset before you start working on the motorcycle. And if you can't find that mindset, you've defeated yourself already. So, what's the first piece of advice that you give to new developers? If I had to pick just one, I would say that you're being hired for your potential not for your ability to deliver, especially in the first five years of your career. And so what you want to do is you want to maximize that potential and you want to maximize how to display that potential. And I have a couple of suggestions on how to do that. We can dive into later if we want. But I think a lot, especially as Jacob was saying, the people that come out of non-traditional backgrounds are expecting to be able to walk in and like drop code or, or they feel the pressure of having to do that at their first job in their first week. And I'll say as a senior developer, it's rare for me to do that, right? I mean, yeah, I want to ship code on my first day, but anytime you walk into a system, even if it's a React, you know, vanilla React, a single page application, and you just came out of a React bootcamp or, or you just finished a bunch of React courses, there's so much variation, both in the technical system and then in a bigger way, especially since this is the focus of this, this podcast, you know, the organizational system, the people, right? And, and, and just writing the code is not enough to get stuff done, unfortunately. So I think bring higher potential and think about ways to optimize that and then realize that when you're dropped in, everyone has a whole new system to learn and you have to be prepared for that. Do you have any advice for getting started at a new job? How do you figure out what you're supposed to do? How do you like learn the systems and things like that? Sure. So uh, kind of a, a guiding principle I have, and unfortunately, you only get one chance to be a new developer at a new job. And my experience of that is 20 years away ago. So I can talk about what I did there, not necessarily intentionally, but I can also talk about what I do as I come into new jobs as a more experienced developer. But I think as a new developer or as a new employee, it's really important to what I call over-index, um, which is kind of like overclock a little bit. It's always important to bring your best self to work, but I think you have a little more latitude as people know you. And so I think that first month is a really great time for you to shine. And you can shine in terms of taking extra special care when you write a commit message or staying a little bit late or doing a little bit of extra reading on the weekend. And I don't want to force like the cult of hustle, right? The cult of overwork. But I think that extra effort in that, another way you could shine is write down the name of every person you meet, right? So that you can refer to them by name when you see them again. That extra effort you take in that first month will set your reputation 
for the rest of your time at that company. And you can change reputation over time at a company and good companies look at results, not just what you do the first month. But I think taking extra time and like doing a little bit of extra special shine and extra special effort will pay dividends further on. So that's kind of one kind of generic piece of advice. There's a psychological effect that, you know, first impressions are an actual thing. 100%. What do you think are some things that will surprise someone on that first job? Things that surprise me because I, I have a hard time generalizing, right? I have a certain lived life, uh, that lived experience. But one thing that surprised me is that the code is not that important. Right? We kind of alluded to that earlier. But the prop, the solving the actual business problem or organizational issue is way more important. And that sometimes can be done with code. Sometimes it can be done very elegantly with code. But lots of times it can be done with a manual process or figuring out why you're doing the thing you're doing and taking a different path to that goal. Maybe it's a third party service. Maybe it is determining that the business shouldn't try to achieve that goal at all. Now, again, as a new developer, you probably have a little bit less sway unless you're in a small organization, but asking questions to get to the underlying root of what you're trying to solve rather than taking the instructions you're given and just, you know, like an automaton, like typing out the code is going to make you a more valuable employee. And frankly, I think it'll make it a more enjoyable job for you. So that would be the one of the things I would say would be a, a surprise. Yeah, if there's something that seems like a bad idea, then either it is a bad idea or you don't understand why it's a good idea. Yeah, and I have never found it to be a bad idea to ask a question respectfully, right? I think bagging on code or saying, hey, that's a dumb idea because we learned how to do it differently. This other, you know, in my in my education is not constructive, but asking, hey, what are the reasons for doing this? And they'll either... The person who's directing you to do it will either have a really good set of reasons, in which case you'll learn something, or they'll be like, huh, that's a good question. And then they'll go dig into it further, hopefully, and come back with an answer that's either, a, yeah, we should do it for these reasons, or you're right, it's a bad, it's a bad idea. Yeah. One thing I think it's really important to try to understand is that everyone is coming to work to do a good job. And if you look hard enough, you can generally find reasons for things that aren't either stupidity or malice. Yeah, we had a episode a long time ago before I joined the podcast that was talking about uh, code hospitality. Uh, and it sort of related being new to a code base as being new to a city. And the person that's showing you around is sort of like your tour guide and how it's your job as being introduced to a new code base is not dissimilar from being introduced to a new culture. And it's not really your job. It's your job to understand better and not pass immediate judgment or, you know, come in with these are how things should be fixed. It's like your job to sort of learn the full story um, and be respectful of your host. So, yeah, I thought that was a really, really interesting way to put it. I love that. And, you know, one of the ways I've put it is that you will definitely run across code that you roll your eyes at or you say, what on earth was this person thinking? Um, I've done it and I've had people do it to my code. And the thing that you don't have when you look at it is you don't have the full context in which that code was written. Right? You don't know about deadlines. You don't know about budget. You don't know about the way the code has evolved over time. And so, you know, you're not going to be very effective if you hire people by the color, color of their shirt. You shouldn't evaluate code by the, the first time you read it because you don't have that context. But I love the city guide analogy because that makes it personal too. I also don't like this code. Would you like to know how it got this way? <laughs> yeah. It was our and first why, year. And why we haven't changed it yet. Exactly. I would like to say, you know, we talked a little bit about not pressuring yourself and not trying to come in and immediately like deliver, you know, code or feel like you can need to know everything and that you can't figure stuff out, right? Like setting those arbitrary boundaries. Jacob mentioned that. I think it's also interesting as I look over my career that it's okay to accept your weaknesses too. And I think that I, I think you should try new things continually. But if you try new things or you're, you're trying things over and over again and you're continuing to not be good at them, then you need to evaluate, do I want to put in the time and the effort to be good at them? Or is it better 
that I pick something else that I enjoy and happen to be good at and spend more time getting better at that. And an example of that for me is engineering management versus communication and writing. I do a lot of writing and communication in my current job. I've been an engineering manager a couple of times and both times I was, you know, promoted internally. I ran a team and I would not say that I was the best at it. I felt like I wasn't improving and I wasn't enjoying the process. And so, yes, try new things. Yes, you know, push your boundaries, but listen to what the world is telling you too. It's not like you have to be 100% good at everything. No one expects that of you. There are a lot of organizations where management is the only path for engineers. This is unfortunate because they're different jobs and becoming a good engineer doesn't automatically make you a good manager. It's, I think it's really good to know that there are things that either you don't think you're good at or that you don't enjoy doing and to make a decision for yourself about, you know, how you want your career to go, where you want to spend a third of your life. Some time ago, I decided that management wasn't for me and that I wanted to stay an individual contributor. And one of the reasons for that was that there were aspects of management that I didn't like, but another was that I wanted to stay closer to the work. I, I wanted to have an impact from a similar position as the other people who were doing the work. So I wanted to be a peer rather than a manager. So one thing I, I've said before is that management and engineering are kind of like American football and regular world football, right? Or soccer. They overlap in some ways, both time, you know, they're similar concepts. You're both scoring goals or points and they're players on the field, but it's a whole different set of skills. And I agree with you that especially at small organizations, it's hard to, you, you stay there for a while, you're promoted, you're maybe a team lead. And then you're, I mean, I stepped into director of engineering roles and that was in some ways because the opportunity opened up and I wanted to try it. But in other ways it was because it was up or out um, in terms of salary, in terms of responsibility. And I agree with you. I think that's short-sighted. I think that we should think about ways for strong individual contributors who, especially those who've tried management and then step back, in some ways, those are the best people to be managed. There are some companies that have a parallel IC ladder that goes all the way up, you know, through architect and so on. They are out there. You can find them. It, it is nice to not be stuck, you know, at senior engineer for your whole career. Of course, for a lot of people, senior engineer is the thing they're trying to get to. What makes a senior engineer? What makes them senior? So I have a blog post I'll, I'll drop. I think there's like a senior engineer is an overloaded term. It's an overloaded term. There's 15 different kinds of senior engineers. A senior engineer at a small consulting company is going to have a different set of skills and abilities and job requirements than a senior engineer at Google. But the one thing that I see over and over again across different types of senior engineers is just the ability to look at a problem in a larger context. So you own the whole problem, you own solving it, and you aren't focused on the actual implementation, although you may move up and down the stack and, and do implementation details, but you really have that sense of ownership and you poke your head up periodically and look around the organization and think of other places you can add value or your team can solve problems with. So you're connected tissue as well. But I, I like to think that newer developers or junior engineers really are handed kind of problems and senior engineers understand problems, find problems and solve problems. Yeah. And I think it's interesting how, and this is not particular to our industry, uh, the, the longer you stay with the company and grow with the company, whether you're a manager or not, you're going to find yourself doing manager-like duties, right? You know, because like if you're the senior developer that worked on and knows the most about the CICD pipeline, you're probably going to spend a lot of time like talking to people, helping them troubleshoot, going to meetings about where to go with it. And suddenly that's going to feel like being a manager. And I, I think it's interesting how quickly you can find yourself being the most knowledgeable about something at your company, uh, whether it's this tiny little corner of the code base and that people will be, might be coming to you for it. You might be telling people what to do about it. 
I've definitely been surprised about that. I will say, I think it can be a little bit of a trap to become the subject matter expert at your company on some important thing. And I think one of the things that a, a senior engineer should be looking to do is to delegate, to level other people up so that they can take on those responsibilities. And then you can focus on the next thing, because the yeah. thing that was the most important thing for your company two years ago is probably not the thing that's the most important thing for your company today. So if you always want to direct your impact where it can be the most valuable, you have to learn how to give things up. Yeah. Now that I feel comfortable in this area, I want to like teach two other people to do it. And that's a really good point. Definitely. I, um, I just love to write stuff down. Like I love run books and all those other pieces of documentation, not just for other people, but for future me. But it really is a good step to step away from things. I mean, I will say you mentioned about like impact, right? And wanting to work on the highest impact thing. I think. You're actually looking for the um, union of what's the highest impact thing you can do that you are enjoying or you could conceivably enjoy. Because I've definitely done some high impact things like stepping into management that I didn't enjoy. And I think I tend to be a people pleaser. And so I think it's important for developers, wherever they are in their career, to say, yeah, I'll try this. Maybe I'll try this management thing for six months or be the CICD expert for six months. But I'm going to keep tabs on my happiness and I'm not going to fall into this just because the company needs me to do this, right? You don't want to play a role for your career and be, get really good at something that you hate. Hate's a strong term, right? It's all technology, even just something that you dislike or that you aren't excited about. We're lucky enough, a lot of people, that they can do some self-direction in their careers. So take advantage of that. Don't stumble into things. Or Maybe I should say, stumble into them, try them, and then evaluate. Don't continue with them unconsciously. So for a, a junior engineer who's trying to become a no-prefix engineer, or for an, an engineer trying to become a senior engineer, how does it change as you advance, like what, what your manager is looking for, what you need to demonstrate to you know, get promoted and so on, and, and what stays the same? So what stays the same is that you need to continue to take on new challenges and succeed at them. I think you need to continue to communicate well, which I scope it down to say what you're going to do and then actually do it. So like communicate the problem and then execute against it. I think those couple of things are going to be happy. I mean, I would be thrilled if I had any direct report that did those couple of things, right? Like took on new challenges and then was good at executing them and communicated the difficulties they had. I think, again, scope keeps coming up, but as a newer developer, your scope is just smaller, right? You're expected to know fewer things. You're expected to be handed work, you know, maybe on a platter, depending on your environment. It might not, it might be a bigger or smaller platter, but I do think that being able to execute quickly against problems, being able to pattern match, being able to know when you should look for a library, look for a third-party solution, look for your own, you know, write your own code. Those are all things that I think change over time, right? You don't expect someone who's really new to know that they should have looked for a library. You're probably going to tell them that, but I would expect kind of a no-prefix developer to be able to look around and realize that they shouldn't write their own MVC framework, right? They shouldn't even start that process. They should know the universe of solutions. Well, not the whole universe, right? But know that there are solutions out there and then evaluate them and have some way to uh, evaluate them intelligently. And have some experience with like anticipating what the trade-offs will be for any given decision. Or, or just like having instincts that you, there will be <laughs> that like to ask yourself what the trade-offs will be because there always are we'll have some problem no matter what decision we make and having at least some intuition about well i think if we choose to do this we're probably going to be having this problem in six months but if we do the other thing we'll have this other problem i like to think of it like looking around corners right or like the chess master analogy where I'm okay at chess. I might look one or two moves ahead, but someone who's more experienced might look five or six moves ahead. And in all reality, a senior developer is just a new developer who has time and mistakes mixed in. And that's what you're paying the premium for. You're paying for their mistakes that they've made on other people's dime. 
that's why I couldn't get hired as a senior developer at Google, probably, because I don't have the, the experience that a senior developer at Google needs, the context it needs. So you're absolutely right that like the looking around corners piece is a really key thing. If you want a single metric for how senior an engineer really is, how many mistakes they've made, isn't it? That's a good one. I, that made me, made me really depressed to think about, like, if I wrote down how many mistakes I made. But actually, that would be a great interview question. I think that'd be, um, especially at, like, the second or third interview when you have some trust built up. Because asking about mistakes that they've made is kind of like, what's your greatest weakness? Like, you're going to want to play that as a candidate. But I think if you could have an honest conversation about a mistake they've made and how they rectified it. Cause that's the thing about mistakes, right? Like you don't just get to make mistakes and then drop your mic and leave. <laughs> I mean, you have to like acknowledge them, rectify them, and then try to make sure you prevent, you, you prevent yourself or other people from making them in the future. That to me would be an interesting interview question. I've never actually asked that in an interview about it. If a new developer gets that question or anyone gets that question in an interview, what's a good way to go about answering that? I think my greatest flaw is that I work too hard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a perfectionist. I'm a perfectionist, right? Well, first of all, I think if you don't feel safe talking about a mistake in an interview, that's actually a really good warning sign, right? Like if, if you feel like it's a gotcha question, that indicates to me that they aren't very good at interviewing or that the kind of organization doesn't really like mistakes, in which case, red flag, right? So setting that aside, assuming you feel like you can actually answer that question. I think that it's the, the same way with the greatest weakness. You're going to turn, you, you turn it into a strength. You want to say a mistake. I would pick something that is big, but not too big. And then I would talk about how you fixed it. Right. So an example from my life is I was working at a startup. We had a payment system. Our customers were getting payments and then from their customers. And then we were passing that on to them. So it was kind of a pass through model. So that was a really key piece of our infrastructure. And I screwed up how we calculated things. And the actual details of how I screwed up don't really matter. What happened is I discovered the screw up. I talked to my team about it. I then fixed the screw up, right? So I wrote tests against the system to make sure that screw up would never happen again. And then I called the customers and I said, hey, here's what I did. Here's how much money this cost you. We're figuring out how to get that money back to you. I don't honestly remember whether it was far enough in, back in time that we just wrote it off because it was it was hundreds of dollars. It wasn't thousands of millions. But the point is, I went there and we talked about how we solved the problem. They didn't really care, but I talked about internally like the test that I wrote to make sure this would never happen again. So that's how I would answer that question if someone asked me in an interview. You don't just say, oh, my biggest mistake is that I screwed up a payment system and cost my customers money. You say, and then I took these steps. Yep. You might just add, and this is what I learned. Great point. This is what I learned. And in some ways, you could even, if you want to be really proactive or if you're a more senior person, you might say, and this is how I prevented everybody else in the organization or better yet the world from making these mistakes, right? I wrote a blog post about it. I released a library. Um, again, for a new developer, that's a big ask, but I think that uh, how I learned from it and whether that's writing it in your journal, writing a script so that you don't do it in the future, or just studying whatever the issue was so that you can really deeply understand why you made that mistake really puts a bow on it. So there's a, a thing that a friend of mine uh, told me once, um, Edward Komet, who uh, wrote a, a hundred Haskell libraries and is very good at writing code. Um, he said that he always looks for the solution that other solutions factor through. So he always tries to find the most general solution to a problem. I'm not a Haskell person, so I'm not familiar with that term, but I mean, I understand the generalized solution. I think that one thing that you want to be careful of is you want to do that at the right time. Right. If I'm writing a shell script to load some data to a database table once, I don't want to use the most general solution and write tests for it or anything like that. So you do want to pick a solution that is appropriate for the problem. And this gets back to what Jacob said about trade-offs, right? And being a mature engineer is about understanding the trade-offs and saying, well, gosh, I'm doing this one time. I'm going to write this in bash. And Maybe I'll check it in. And if people start to use it again and again, 
then I'll turn it into a Python script and I'll unit test it or whatever. I do think that you do want to try to solve a problem at the appropriate level of, of effort. I think another way uh, he meant it is, so he's a data structures person. So if he's trying to solve a problem with a data structure and that data structure has certain access patterns, he wants the one that has better asymptotics and better constant factors and all the other ones. If If it exists, he wants to find it and use it. He doesn't want to find the less good solution on some dimension when the better one exists. So again, I think that's a really good sentiment. The unfortunate truth is that the universe reign is like, I could spend all my time trying to understand the NPM ecosystem, right? And probably still not get through the whole thing. So at some point you need to like know when to stop, right? It's a stopping algorithm. When have I satisfied? So I think I, that again, might actually be the thing that makes him a senior engineer is knowing when it makes sense to look for that solution. And when to stop. Yeah, yep. I think you're, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, I'm, he find he finds these incredible solutions. You know these data structures. He so one thing he does is he moderates a papers like a, a uh, computer science papers subreddit, <laughs> and he does that so he can get access to all the good papers. And so I learned a lot from him about how to do research, about how to sort of build a, a mental catalog of solutions. And I think that's what he's really good at is knowing when it makes sense to pay the cost to look harder, right? Like you're saying. Yeah, I feel like the, probably the first five years of my career, I spent learning the, I'm using big air quotes, the right way to do it. Um, and that might mean like the right tool or like the right design pattern. And I think the phase I'm in right now is sort of learning to be okay with writing ugly code when it suffices. It's definitely a process, but I think like, what it's coming down to is like, is this meeting the business goal at this particular time? And if this is leaving any technical debt, am I out? Is it, is it worthwhile? And then I can go write, you know, beautiful code on the weekend for fun. Yeah. There's also a big difference between someone who's writing a library where they want to present some solution that's going to be used by thousands of people, right? So all of the work he does to make the library better in that way is magnified, right? Versus you're writing an application and you just need to get the thing that works to solve the problem, right? The other thing is is understanding the, the significance of context. Well, it's interesting to me because as I look back over my career, I, I think that there's this spectrum of pragmatic versus perfectionist in what you actually enjoy too. Right. So, Jacob, I mean, the fact that you're being forced to write code that isn't perfect to meet the business need, it's good that you're taking one for the team. That may indicate that if that happens for a long, long time, that may, may indicate that this is not the right job for you. Right. Or that you might need to shift things. And so I actually um, tend more to be more pragmatic and like get stuff out the door. And that means that all the things being equal, I'm probably shipping lower quality code than I could if I spent more time polishing things. Now, again, if you're producing a library, you should, uh, because that magnification, magnification effect, or if you're working on a product or something like that, like it makes more sense to invest because it's going to be amortized across greater numbers of users. So I think that actually new developers can use this to like guide their career too, because different companies have different standards, just frankly, right? Like code that you're going to write for Google like you're going to need to think about a lot more things because it's executing against or executing on thousands of servers for millions or more users. Whereas you go to a startup and you're just cranking stuff out to deliver something that you can actually test against the market. And so the quality of code, again, I'm not advocating writing garbage code. I just think that anyone who pretends that there's not a difference in quality between those two scenarios is not lived either of them. It's my guess. I, I will advocate writing garbage code. Um. <laughs> bold, bold statement. Me too. <laughs> uh, so the the most general version of this, uh, here I am doing that thing, is what Eric Paul Nagel calls the efficiency thoroughness trade-off. So he researched this in the context of, of uh, human factors and safety science. And so for him, the efficiency thoroughness trade-off, like, the relevance for him was around how do we manage risk? So how safe do you need to be to be safe enough? That sort of a thing. 
And the answer is you make an efficiency thoroughness trade up. You could be more safe, right? If we wanted to be safe, as safe as possible, we would never leave the house. We would never, you know, handle knives, et cetera, right? So we're all making this trade off in how safe we need to be to do our jobs, to live our lives. And this is true for how, you know, all of the things we've just described can be thought of as, as Edo uh, trade offs. But I think you have to get good at making those. You know, a build by decision is, is one of those. I think getting good at recognizing and making efficiency thoroughness trade-offs is one of the key skills for anyone ever, but especially for engineers, because we make so many of them, like every line of code we write, you know, I could do this better, but it would take longer. You know, how many tests are, are enough tests? So that's interesting how because, performant does it have to be? You know, how much should I optimize? Yeah. And at the same time, I think that you need to like, uh, like you certainly I, I would assume most people certainly aren't thinking about that, like every line of code they write, right? It, it becomes intuitive. And that's one of those things that it's like muscle memory for an athlete where you just think, okay, I have this understanding of kind of where we are and it's a gestalt and I'm going to take actions against that in terms of thoroughness and efficiency and back to the mistakes and accept that I might make a mistake. And guess what? Expect that if I pick the wrong library or if I don't search far enough on the one side or I search too far on the other side, those both have ramifications, but I can adjust and I can, I can help fix that issue. Yeah. You know, have you noticed that when you are writing code and you have to make a decision about how to structure some class or, you know, some other thing that you're not actually being analytical about the decision, you're not thinking of five different options and comparing them most of the time, right? What you're actually doing is you think of a thing and then you decide whether it fits the problem. Then if it does, you do it. And so Gary Klein studies this. He called it recognition prime decision-making. And the interesting part about it for me is where does that idea come from? And that's where the recognition primed bit comes in. So we use our experience, right? We use the mistakes we've made. The, we use our experience in similar sort of rhyming situations to come up with a candidate and then we evaluate the, you know, the suitability of that candidate, not against everything else that we could possibly do, but just against the problem itself. Right. And it turns out if humans were actual analytic, you know, rational decision makers all the time, we could never get anything done. It'd just be analysis paralysis all the time. Right. Because yeah, mm -hmm. the universe of decisions is too big. So and people sometimes ask, like, I'll talk to non-technical folks who have an idea and they'll say, you know, what should I build this in? And I say, you know, or what should my team pick? And, and the answer is often, what do they know? Because that's, I wouldn't say it's 90% of the battle, but depending on the situation, it may be half the battle because yeah. for a lot of solutions, the actual implementation details don't matter. I mean... They matter to us working on it. They matter long term, but lots of times I'll be talking to people just starting up and the answer is just to get something out the door as quickly as possible so you can get real world feedback. There's a great, I can never remember the author of this quote um, and I can never remember the exact quote, so I have to paraphrase it, but it's a computer isn't a hard drive and a graphics card. A computer is a screen and a keyboard and a mouse. That is what a computer is. Right. So we interact with everything in our lives through representations. And so in this case, the implementation details are hidden by the representation. Right. So the customer doesn't care that it's in rails. The customer cares that it does the thing they want. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really good tip for new developers on their first job is you may have learned TypeScript, but there's so many other factors in deciding like, well, should we rewrite this in TypeScript? Well, how many people are have, have sat down at the company, no TypeScript already. How much work would, would you have to invest just to get the app to build in TypeScript before you can even think about like enjoying ben the benefits of it, you know, in terms of like decreased efficiency. And I think, um, that is something that just come, just comes with experience. I think there's actually another level, which I'm not, I'm kind of two minds about. And the two other questions you might ask to the manager are, how excited are the developers about using TypeScript? And how many other developers can I hire who use TypeScript? Right? Because if you're looking at a long term project, 
those other things have to factor in. I'm not a huge fan of like letting developers pick whatever flavor of the month they want to implement something in because I think that leads to problems down the line. But at a, a, I worked at a company where I was the director of engineering and it was a Java company and I just said, hey, everything has to be implemented in Java, 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 Java. And that constrained our hiring market. And I'm not sure it was the right solution when we were confronted with problems that were different enough that another language like Python would have been a better fit. So there's so many dimensions to balance around a tech, around any technology decision and trade-off. So those are just two more that I would think of around TypeScript for an application. Yeah, and, and, and it's your job to be thinking about like the developer a year from now because a developer or perhaps not even a senior developer is necessarily going to be thinking about how will this affect someone who has to maintain this a year? I mean, they should be, but they might not have that experience or they, they might be having other constraining, you know, other competing interests going on, uh, that have led them to choose Python, right? But yeah, I mean, I think something that we don't always think about when we sit down to write new code is we're thinking about like, am I setting or reinforcing a best practice in the future? And does this best practice, is it actually reflective of the company as a whole? Or is it really just something that I'm interested in? Uh, and what are the long-term consequences of that? We'd like to take a break in the show to let you know that today's show is sponsored by StrongDM. Managing your remote team as they work from home? Managing a gazillion SSH keys, database, passwords, and Kubernetes certs? Meet StrongDM. Manage and audit access to servers, databases, and Kubernetes clusters, no matter where your employees are. With StrongDM, easily extend your identity provider to manage infrastructure access, automate onboarding, offboarding, and moving people within roles. Grant temporary accesses that automatically expires to on-call teams. Admins get full auditability into anything anyone does, when they connect, what queries they run, what commands are typed. It's full visibility into everything. For SSH, RDP, and Kubernetes, that means video replays. For databases, it's a single unified query log across all database management systems. StrongDM is used by companies like Hearst, Peloton, Betterment, Greenhouse, and SoFi to manage access. It's more control and less hassle. StrongDM. Manage and audit remote access to infrastructure. Start your free 14-day trial today at strongdm.com sdt. Sometimes when we think about being a senior engineer, we think about like taking on big projects, you know, and having this huge impact in that way. Sometimes I, I've found that some of the stuff I do is a smaller thing that has more reach. So I kind of think of impact as being, you know, like a combination of breadth and depth, you know, as an example, I fixed a problem with the way we were testing logging and this fixed like 5,000 specs. Well, it fixed like 500 specs, but it also gave people a new way to write these specs that didn't break. So the problem was that if you added a new assertion somewhere else in a different file, it could break the logging test. And I found a way to fix that. And this was a small thing. It was like the actual file that implemented it was like 50 lines. But it solved a lot of small problems for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's a, a different kind of senior engineer, right? Like... Um, or a different aspect maybe of being a senior engineer is to provide that leverage across an organization and over time too, right? Because you didn't just solve a problem for one little thing. You solved it forever, right? Or at least until the logging framework changes or whatnot, right? Yeah, and I could have just, you know, fixed the way I was writing my test. But what I noticed was, oh, this is actually happening all over the place. And if we just do it slightly differently, it doesn't have to anymore. Right. Right. And that's, that's a great thing to think about scope, right? Like a, a, a junior engineer or a newer developer with the same knowledge base or the same ability to do the research might have solved it at a smaller scope. But you had the ability. And my guess is that you also had like the connections and the political capital to be able to push this up to be more of a standard. Right. And that's. Mm -hmm. not, yeah. So that, that's. Another yeah, actually, the factor. hard part. The hard part wasn't writing the thing. The hard part was getting people to realize that there was a thing now. When I started out as a new developer, I thought that the code was the most important thing. And what you just said, Rain, is 
getting people to know about the code is in a lot of ways more important than the code itself, right? Or it's on par because if you have perfectly beautiful, tested, lovely code that no one knows about, what have you done? Well, you've solved your problem, but yeah. you haven't helped anybody else. And if I solve that problem perfectly for everyone and no one knows about it and no one uses it, then I didn't actually do that. So do you have any advice for how, if so, if I'm, you know, let's say a junior engineer and I come across some small problem like this and I think, oh, I have an idea that could help, you know, help the organization, right? What do you do? How do you actually get people to, to care about that thing? It's a great question. First of all, it's going to totally depend on the organizational dynamics, right? Something that is a product company or a consulting company will have totally different approaches to this scenario. So first of all, I would say, it'd be good to, one, make sure it actually solves the technical problem, right? That's kind of a given because if you, if you think it solves the problem but it actually doesn't, then you end up with egg on your face. So that's the first step. I think going to and building relationships outside of your team in formal way, which if you're 100% remote, that can be difficult in different ways, but having those relationships will allow you to maybe show this to people on other teams or to show this to people at different levels and say, hey, I have this thing that I think will help. Uh, what do you think of it? If your company has an open source culture, then you could open source it um, and kind of expose it that way. Uh, if you have a side project, you can use it on. But I think like proving that it will actually solve the problem and then talking about it right, in whatever means your company uses to communicate, which points out kind of the preface is that you need to understand how your company communicates and people to ask that question of our people who've been there for a while, your manager, right? A great question of one-to-one, if you don't have anything else to talk about is how do, how do ideas get disseminated around here, right? I think that your manager should, if your manager doesn't know how ideas get disseminated, again, that's a warning sign, like they should know. Uh, it's It's easy to look at this. I mean, we're sort of talking to or about junior developers, but how successful they are in that situation has a lot to do with the organization, probably more than them themselves. You know, you can do everything right in that scenario and nothing happens in some organizations. So I would sort of also make this a challenge for leaders. You know, how do you build an organization in which that good idea can get traction? Yeah. You know, I think that or good organizations look at where, where have a way of evaluating ideas and um, mapping them. And, and that is actually an interesting point is the junior developer may, from their vantage point, have a solution that solves a problem. But somebody else from a different vantage point may realize that actually causes different kinds of problems. Right. So what you want to have is not necessarily a way for every idea to get um, implemented, but it's just a way for every idea to get evaluated and have a conversation about it. And guess what? If you have a junior developer come with a great idea and they shout and it goes into the abyss and nothing happens to it, they're not going to come up with their other ideas. Whereas if you have a conversation about it and you say, hey, we can't implement an app because of A, B, and C, but please come with your ideas, they're going to continue to have great ideas and continue to share them with you. I think that's a great point. There's a difference between the importance of trying things and the importance of finding solutions. It can be very worthwhile to try something that doesn't work. Just like having an audience of your peers to be able to tell it to. <laughs> like, this is something I learned because I think, like, even the very low stakes accountability, it's not even accountability. It's just like, I know I learn better when like I know that I have to present some kind of deliverable to another person, even if that deliverable is just like a, this is a five minute talk about what I learned. And I think when peers can sort of form that community where they sort of encourage each other and become a sounding board for each other, that idea that we're talking about that you might come up with or if management can form a team where people are just like free to share those ideas with each other and help each other learn. I think that's maybe even a bigger win. <laughs> I love the idea of a peer group. The two kind of things where I've seen that happen in my career are uh, brown bag, right? Because it's super easy to organize a brown bag and it works so many other skills. And the other is if you don't necessarily have peers at your company is, is I encourage, and maybe this is me being Pollyanna, but I encourage 
everybody to start a blog because you can write that and I'll tell you, you actually really learn it when you're trying to explain it to other people on the internet and you don't know who that's going to help in the future. Like I've had totally random people stumble across things that I've written on my blog and say, oh, thank you, this really helped or this really, this message meant a lot to me. And to me, that that's super um, inspiring and wants and encouraged me to do more. But um, uh, that's a way you can kind of find a peer group. And you could use something like Dev.2 or Hashnode or something like that to kind of combine those two things. But um, I love the idea of, of uh, group accountability being a way to drive learning and make learning deeper. So I'm really interested from your experience as a manager, you know, a director, a CTO, and so on. How, how do you make an organization where junior engineers can thrive and grow? I don't have a lot of good experience in that, unfortunately. I've mostly worked at smaller organizations, so I can speak to how I try to structure things there. The CTO piece, you know, I put that on my um, resume and my bio because it's true. I was a CTO, but just like there are different kinds of senior engineers, there are different kinds of CTOs. I was a CTO of a two-person startup, right? And that's totally different than it being a CTO of, of a 10, 50, 100, 500-person company. So I was really a founding engineer, even though my title was CTO. But as far as helping junior engineers, when I've been in director of engineering, I think putting together a roadmap of successes, right? And it's a really uncomfortable thing to do because things are so fluid. But I think doing things like ownership of tasks and saying, hey, you can complete a ticket without um, asking anybody the goal is not to have people not ask. The goal is to get someone to the point where they're comfortable doing that, right? So setting out goal posts that they can kind of check off and say, hey, this is, I've gotten to a certain level because part of the frustration I think as a new developer is things are so fluid, you don't really know how you're progressing. And so putting some real goal posts there, I think would be helpful. The other thing is I always have this rule of don't spend more than, 30 minutes banging your head against a problem before you ask somebody. I think that is really important for me to kind of foster that culture of help and communication. And I think that rule doesn't mean that someone's going to give you the answer at the end of 30 minutes. It just means that you should do some research. You should try to find the problem, uh, excuse me, try to find the solution. And then if you can't throw up your hand and ask for help and that help may be, someone rubber ducking it with you and maybe someone saying, oh, you actually should just go over here. It's totally documented in this other document you didn't know about because you're new to this company organization. Or it could be somebody saying, gosh, I don't know. You're going to need to figure this out. Or maybe I can Google with you a little bit. But having that stopping point, I think, for new developers prevents them from heading down a rabbit hole and spending five hours researching something that uh, somebody might be able to help them with. Thank you. So you, you talked about starting a blog. You yourself have a pretty good blog. It's pretty cool. And I understand that you're turning it into a book. So I did actually uh, just publish it. So it came out August 16th, uh, 2020, for those of you listening five years from now. And it was a really great experience to take the blog posts, rework them, add new content, put them into kind of thematic uh, chapters and then get them reviewed by other people I respected and go through the book publishing process. I have yet to actually hold it in my hand. I'm hoping to get some copies this week, but a uh, tremendous amount of work. I'm not, uh, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for anybody who does something that's less episodic. Like my letters are all a couple of pages long and I group them by theme but they're not really contiguous, right? I don't have character development or I don't have a, a thought that I have to kind of bring through 10, 20, 100 pages. Book writing is hard. It's hard. So it's an edited collection. And then what was the work like to, to turn it into a book? So I basically wrote, wrote some software. Not It was garbage software to pull down the RSS feed and like turn it into... Uh, text files and then I used Word and I 
basically gathered them into chapters and then I read them and reread them and reread them multiple times, multiple passes to make sure that things flow together well, that I was, that I was not missing any important concepts. Um, and then I ended up writing more stuff, uh, more letters that I hadn't published on my blog previously. Yeah, that was, uh, other interesting things are I included a selection of other people's contributions because one of the nice things about my blog now that has a certain amount of following, a certain amount of traffic, people actually want to write for it, which I think is a really interesting thing for me because one, it brings different perspectives to the blog and two, I can actually elevate different voices, right? I'm, I'm trying to reach out to underrepresented people and make sure that they, if they want to, right? I mean, I realize I'm not offering like a job. I'm offering a chance to write for free, right? So it's not like a, a golden opportunity, but it is a platform of some kind. So I pulled some of those folks, um, some of those letters into the book. And I just like that because it's one of the things I've realized as I talk to new developers and I talk to people on podcasts and I talk to other people about developer careers is that the context matters so much. And so, you know, white, male, middle-aged, hetero in the U.S., like my context is one thing. And so I love to bring in other voices to provide other other perspectives. So how how big is the book? How many blog posts or did you write? It's about 10 chapters, about 210 pages, 215 pages. So I actually don't know the, the count of the blog posts that made it in the book versus the ones that didn't. But um, the shortest chapter is like 15 pages on community, I think, and your, your role as a developer in the community, and the longest is on career. And it, it's, it's fun because, well, of course I think it's fun. I wrote it. There's like super tactical advice, like somebody wrote a letter about how to appear at a job fair, right? Because this person has worked at bigger companies and goes to job fairs regularly. And I, I've never been, to, I haven't been to a job fair in, I don't know, it's been years and years since I went to a job fair, but current situation notwithstanding, eventually job fairs will happen again. And for a new developer, that can be a really great intro into a, a company that they might not have an opportunity to, to work at otherwise. And then it's, there's some stuff that's like super strategic, like how do you learn, right? And how can you find out the best way to learn, which the answer, you know, spoiler is mostly just try different things and see what resonates. We can stop talking about the book. I'm, I just wanted to, I know it's, it's one of the, I would say a crowning achievement of my life. Like I would say doing a startup that actually made money, um, writing this book and then surviving a contractor for years, probably like the, some of the crowning achievements of my professional career. Can we talk about the community part? That sounded really interesting. What was that about? Sure. So, and actually I had a reviewer say thank you for including that because a lot of technical books don't really focus on that. But I basically talked about like the different kinds of communities you can be part of and how they can help your growth as a developer. And I talk about things like meetups or online communities. I know that a lot of people don't like Hacker News very much. And I think that it's okay in small doses like Twitter, right? But I think that communities like that can really accelerate your career. One, in terms of just making you aware of the universe of possibilities. We talked about trade-offs and like knowing how to evaluate things. The first step to evaluating something is actually knowing that it exists. Um, and then you can take other steps. Hacker News has been important to me in terms of that. Other communities are as well. So I talk about meetups. I talk about like how you, uh, conversational hooks. I talk about online tech communities. Oh, great post about you get what you give, kind of a give first, uh, post. And, and actually this is something I, I'd like to mention. I think it's so important as a new developer that you take care of your work community. I think a lot of people only reach out to their former colleagues when they're looking for a job, which I think is a totally legitimate thing to do, right? Like you're looking for a job reach out to your former work community, but it's way better to reach out to them proactively and give them value, keep in touch with them, go to coffees with them, send them links that are interesting. Like there's a lot of low effort things you can do to keep your work network alive and interested in you, not even interested in you, just aware of you. And then when it finally comes to switch jobs, it'll be like a warm intro as opposed to like a cold sales call, right? I haven't talked to you in five years. Hey, 
I can you give me an intro to whatever person, right? So I just like to like provide that. And I think that more developers should do that. And I don't think it needs to be sleazy. I don't think it needs to be scummy. I don't think it needs to be transactional. But I think like any other relationship, you should be conscious of your work relationships. Do you get questions from your audience or your readers? Some. Um, I had one person talk to me about how they should prepare for a Facebook interview, right? Which I was the wrong, again, context, right? Like I've worked at small companies most of my life. I, I Googled around a little bit and I told them, I was honest. I said, I don't really know. Uh, no, I, that's one of the things about writing a blog. If anyone's thinking about that is that you'll spend a lot of time writing stuff and you'll get very occasional bits of, um, feedback. I had people at meetups say, Hey, I really appreciate it. But, um, not, not too many questions. I'd love mm-hmm. questions. If anyone's listening to this and you want my advice, uh, advice is one of my favorite things for people to give, right? And I, I love to give advice. So happy to answer questions. What from this conversation would you want a junior developer to take away the most? Sure. I think that the one piece of advice that I would want a junior developer to take away from this is build your mental muscle around trade-offs and thinking about trade-offs in even going so far as to ask people like when you see a decision that you're questioning think ask don't just ask them why a decision was made we talked about that earlier uh, but ask what the trade-offs they considered were i think that would be a great thing to help you internalize that and you know, I always say that there's like two ways of learning something, right? If you are told the stove is hot and if you touch a stove and you will remember them differently. But even though when you ask someone about the trade-offs that they're thinking about, you're in that first phase of like ask, like learning a stove is hot, you can still pick up useful information from it. I like that a lot. I think the flip side to that for senior engineers is to get good at externalizing your thought process. Definitely. My reflection and is thinking about talking to junior developers. So many junior developers now, or just developers in their first job, are not coming from a computer science background. I've been thinking a lot how there are experiences that you, new developer, have that people with more coding experience don't, and your perspective, your new employer might find are actually more valuable than five extra years of coding experience. And that the, they could be, for example, from your, if you came from a previous career, if you majored in something else in college, if you just have a life experience that's different from most other developers, you know, because you're not male, et cetera, et cetera. And hopefully those experiences will be valued. By your employer, but I think that those unique experiences can absolutely be shaped into being excellent at your job as much as what you know about code. I think my reflection is that we've been talking a lot about what junior developers can do to grow, to learn, to improve. And I think it's really important to point out that a junior developer is working in a context that has a lot to do with shaping how they think, what they think about, what they can do, what they can't do, what is easy, what is hard. And so I think the flip side to asking junior developers to consider trade-offs more or to do any of these things is how would you as a leader make a context in which that's an easy thing to do? I know I'm sort of a broken record on this one, but the context we're in when we're thinking changes how we think. Cool. So on that point, I would say that if you're a new developer and you're interviewing a place, you want to like suss out as much that context as you possibly can because, you know, you want to ask how do people progress? What's the learning support like here? Because if you have a choice between a job that pays well, but you're the only technical person there or the support system isn't there or that doesn't pay as well, but actually will provide the ability for you to learn and grow and be mentored and whatnot. I don't understand your financial situation, 
And I don't judge you for taking the higher paying job, but I can tell you, you'll be better served in your career long term by taking the, the lower paying job where you can learn more. That's not my reflection. My reflection is actually like a personal to do. Like it was really interesting to me to kind of talk about the trade offs and how you make those decisions. And I had kind of arrived at some of the things I said here empirically, like through my own life. And it was really interesting to hear what Rain said about efficiency thrown as trade off and recognition prime decision making. So my reflection is there's some theoretical knowledge out there that I would be benefited by uh, reading more about and learning more about. So I'm excited about that. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a really interesting discussion. I really appreciate the time. So yeah, thank you for coming on. Thanks for coming really on. Fun. Yeah. I think this is like a really, really great fit for our show. Yeah, I, I think it, it really demonstrates like why we call the show greater than code, right? Mm-hmm. Because all of the things we were talking about were very explicitly, okay, there's the code, but look at all <laughs> this other stuff. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. 